This podcast episode is brought to you by the Outcomes Rocket Network, where you get your healthcare insights from the most inspiring healthcare podcasters. Welcome to Clinical Research Confidential. On this show, we highlight and demystify the inner workings of this greatly misunderstood activity called clinical research. Now, why is clinical research important? Well, it's the basis for nearly every modern remedy for sickness and a growing method to build trust and solutions meant to optimize health. But it's not for the faint of heart. And so on this show, you'll hear what it really takes to succeed in the clinical research game. I'm your host, Joseph Kim, and I've spent over 23 years in the clinical research industry, now serving as the Chief Strategy Officer for Proof Pilot. Get ready for some adventures as we look into the underbelly of clinical research. Hi, everyone. I'm here with Hassan Karim. So I've known Hassan for, gosh, a long time now, years. And it's really great to have you on the show. For those of you who don't know him, he is the global head of clinical trial business capabilities at Bristol Myers Squibb. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. Great having uh, this conversation with you. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about decentralized clinical trials. And this has been pretty hyped up for some years now. And I really want to work with you to like get down to how you really define it because you you seem like this type of person who probably hasn't like drank too much of the Kool-Aid. Um, but of course we can't, uh, we want to innovate as well. So that's sort of the topic for today. But before we go into that, I want to talk a little bit about your own story in clinical research. Um, so judging from your background, you know, you didn't go to school for clinical research. You went for like bioinformatics uh, and, and it was, and you started out more in the IT world and basic science. Tell us a little bit about that origin and how you ended up uh, where you are. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I did uh, my college years and uh, started in IT, then pivoted more to the science and uh, bioinformatics. Uh, and I actually did my graduate studies in pharmaceutical uh, sciences uh, with uh, specialization in clinical research. So that last part really is what got me the basics of clinical research. Uh, but when I started my career um, in the industry, uh, first in small biotechs and then uh, into early the early R&D space um, at uh, Boringer Ingelheim, where I spent 11 years of my career before moving to Bristol-Myers Squibb. Um, I was always, as I started in the early R&D space, I always felt there's something missing. Uh, it was very abstract. We're working with compounds and cells and you don't feel you don't feel the impact on people until much later down the the research process and that has always left a desire in me to look on the other side and um eventually an opportunity came and i jumped on it and started working on the in the clinical side uh and while i was completing my graduate research uh where i focused on in fact on what at the time we called the remote clinical trial model. That's before it was called DCT. Uh, I found this world very fascinating and, and, and I continued uh, working in it until I got the opportunity to join BMS and lead the clinical trial business capabilities team, which is a really nice blend of clinical trial expertise and digital health technology expertise. We blend both and really drive the strategy for 
BMS, global development operations, and how do we advance clinical trials using digital technologies. So we cover the entire spectrum of technologies from your established bread and butter clinical trial technologies like CTMS, ETMF, EDC, and so on and so forth, to the new up and coming and let's say exciting uh, innovative capabilities like decentralized trials uh, and digital protocol solutions and things like that. So uh, I lead a team of about 30 and um, focused on strategic uh, initiatives and always looking to improve on the way we conduct trials, both at BMS and in the industry. Yeah, great, great. Um, so then what part of your job is really focused on doing things kind of the traditional way, which let's face it, isn't going to disappear overnight and maybe never disappear for good reason, uh, versus what what percentage of your time is focused on, you know, novel innovation? That's a great question. Um, so I lead the group and obviously uh, for those parts of the business that are established, we have experts in our group that uh, drive the operations of uh, the established capabilities. Um, so I do get involved in there to make sure things are, are working, to ensure we continue developing the strategy. But I spent maybe 30 to 35% of my time there, whereas the new up-and-coming technologies and capabilities are fertile ground. we got to build it from the ground up and requires a lot of thinking, a lot of strategic focus, and this is where I, I work a lot with both with my team and adjacent teams, stakeholder teams, to really build strong capabilities, uh, especially for the new ones. There's not a lot of experience out there and insights. So we really got to do some research internally. We have to reiterate several times to see what works and, and how we can uh, really establish that capability for long-term success. Um, and that's where I, I would say I spent about 60% of my time. Wow. Um, yeah. Now, is it because it's that much harder or you love it, you like it better or, uh, is the other stuff just kind of run on autopilot? Yeah, it's probably a bit of both. Uh, I, so I definitely like it. I like the totality of my role, but, um, there's a bit of excitement on the innovative capabilities, but I can tell you, it's not just that there's definitely a need. Because a lot of people get excited and hyped about everything that is new. But when you get down to doing it, we stop. And that's why a lot of innovations, especially in this industry, take a long time before they, uh, they realize. Um, there is, people underestimate how much, I mean, they get excited about it by innovation, but they underestimate the effort that it requires to stand this up, especially in clinical trials, which is a very risky business, which requires a lot of scientific and operational input. And any mistake you make in that space could cost you a lot of money down the line and, and could be uh, could jeopardize future revenue potential, which is why people are really careful. Um, and that's why we, I, I personally invest a lot of time to make sure that what we deliver to the organization is not only fit for purpose, but uh, takes into consideration all the risks that can come with implementing something new. Yeah. I mean, simply put, I like to say you never want a good drug to look bad because something, you know, got screwed up. And maybe worse, you never want a bad drug to look good because you screwed it up and, you know, the data's, the quality wasn't there. 
Um, so the stakes are very high, as you said. Um, so yeah, let's let's transition to this topic of decentralized clinical trials, which, you know, I think if you asked five people, they'd give you five different definitions. And all of a sudden, in the last year, you have these companies who say, oh, we've done a thousand decentralized clinical trials, which is technically impossible. And what they're doing is they're saying, well, we did this one thing remotely, so I'm calling that a decentralized clinical trial. What? Can you please clarify from from your vantage point, like what to you is really a decentralized clinical trial? Is it one one procedure that's done at home or is it everything or something in between? Yeah, so so what I find interesting is how we've evolved as an industry, certainly catalyzed by the pandemic. Uh, But I remember when I was doing my graduate uh, research thesis in 2014, um, and just really introducing concepts like remote trials, people were not fully aligning behind that. They would think this is totally futuristic. You can't do it. Um, and the definition of it at the time, of course, did not stick with people's minds. It was really interesting observing when the pandemic hit, suddenly everybody realized, oh, That actually not only works, but we actually need it. It's not just exciting. It's something we absolutely need. And suddenly everybody started defining it in their own way. And then on top of that, that created a huge hype cycle and everybody wanted to join that bandwagon. So you started hearing that term. And I get tons of emails from vendors, collaborators, people that want to showcase their product. And decentralized trial, that term is always there. It's like, you wanna capture someone's attention, put that term in there, they'll read the email. Um, so we're, we got into a situation where the term is used so much that people don't really know what it means anymore. They just know that it's important, it's exciting, and it might get me somewhere. Um, on the flip side, when, as a pharma company, you're trying to develop that as a capability, and you're looking for partners, it becomes really difficult because all these vendors have different definitions for it. Uh, And then there's new vendors that come in that space and they also claim to have that. So when we, obviously we were impacted by COVID like every other big pharma, and we, that became a catalyst, uh, an impetus for our leaders to agree that we need to do something big about decentralized trials. Um, So it's a partnership with many different stakeholders, certainly my team as the business strategy function, but there's no doubt a need for partnership with IT as the technical integrators and the kind of the the technical shepherds of the, the, the system and with our procurement colleagues who help us build these commercial Uh, and uh, partnerships with several vendors. So as we got together to define what that thing is, uh, we considered several approaches. And first of all, we wanted to make sure we internally are aligned on what that means. What are the basic components of what we call decentralized trials? But then we wanted to ensure that what what we internally mean is understood by the vendors so that they don't tell us something and confuse us into something else. Um, And so we decided, as we were discussing and looked at various ways uh, others talk about DCT, we decided to um, create a definition that drives real change. Uh, Maybe it's ambitious and difficult, 
but um, it's a holistic definition of DCT that still has a bit of flexibility because we know this field is evolving. And uh, we agreed that our definition of decentralized trial must have, DCTs must have at least four core capabilities, which I will list in a moment, and an additional four uh, optional capabilities that we will explore uh, as we progress. And then one, um, uh, one core uh, element to the study design that, that must be there. So the four core technical technology capabilities are e-consent, e-COA, telemedicine, and a patient engagement app or platform. So these four things must be implemented in a study for us to call this a decentralized trial. Hmm. If it's one of those, it's not a DCT. If it's two of those, it's not a DCT. Um, and then we added four additional optional capabilities. And, and we were very, um, very careful to make this definition, uh, uh, communicate this definition across all of our internal company because our internal internal stakeholders were also getting confused because they're getting all these emails. They're hearing about this oh, yeah. in all kinds of different contexts. And so they, they hear DCT and they think it's something else. So we needed to invest a lot of time in communicating. The four additional optional capabilities are direct to patient shipping, uh, mHealth, um, uh, home health, and uh, uh metrics dashboards hmm. uh so analytics and everything sure. so sure. these we did not uh we were not um uh we did not force the 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 definition to have to include it in every trial but we kept this opening so that in the future as the capabilities evolve we may kind of make it mandatory and every study not only needs to have the four core capabilities that i mentioned earlier but must also have a portion of the study design performed at home. Mm. We don't say which portion, we don't say how much, we don't say 20%, 50%, or 80%, or 100%, but we say we kept it flexible in that some of the visits must be done from home. With this definition, we think that we are able to drive real cultural change internally and drive uh, sustainable change long-term. We also recognize that this definition makes it harder for yes. a company of the size of BMS to implement. So we we won't come out and say we have 80 percent of our trials are DCT because that's not true. Mm -hmm. um, I I know that. I mean, I've heard it in conferences and in other places. Some companies come out and put out some claims, and when you dig deeper, you realize they just did ECOA, for example, and they're right. calling this DCT. Right. Or they're just doing e-consent and like five different countries or five different studies uh, or let's say many different studies, but one country, one site, and they're calling this DCT. Yeah. Um, yeah. Same <laughs> is true with, with the vendors because a lot of the vendors that responded to our uh, sourcing event would give us numbers that we found ridiculous saying like, we've done 300 DCT <laughs> in the past five years. And then when you dig deeper, you realize they counted the ECOA studies and the e-consent studies and the patient apps. All of that is lumped under the umbrella of DCT. So it's really confusing for, for us when we're trying to find a, a partner because we have to dig deeper into every claim. And that makes our sourcing process much longer. Um, 
So that's how we defined it. Yeah. We're living with the consequences of this. <laughs> As I mentioned, it's not easy. Uh, it creates uh, a lot of work, but I think it's good for the long term. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, I, I knew I could count on you to actually give give me a cogent, like reasonable answer that I fully understand. Uh, tons of questions, though. Like, so why? And I think I know the answer to this question, but I want to hear it from you. Why not just define it for definition's sake? Why were you motivated to define define it so that it drives change? Wow, that's an excellent question. Um, and maybe it's it's partly. So you asked me earlier where I spend most of my time in the <laughs> established or the the new up and coming. Yeah. I think the established capabilities are. Um, the good thing about the way my group is designed is that we learn a lot from how these established capabilities uh, evolved over time. Um, I'll give you just a, an example. You would probably survey electronic trial and today they will tell you they all have some form of electronic trial master file. That's today in 2022. Five years ago, maybe they, they didn't. Maybe they were still doing paper or some form of, of e-binders. Um, but to get to the point that we are today, someone must have a innovated with ETMF and eventually driven change at scale to get to the point where ETMF is second nature today. We do it like yeah. we, we wouldn't do yeah. any trial without it. Same thing for EDC. Um, and I believe that all every one of the capabilities that we have, and I run a team of 17 capabilities. So 17 large capabilities that uh, enable the conduct of all of our trials. To get to decentralized trial to a point where it's a capability, we need to drive real sustainable change. I'm not, I was not interested in doing a pilot here and a pilot there and then go claim glory that we've done it. Yeah. I'm interested in, in really changing the way BMS conducts trials so that at the end, all the patients, regardless of where they are in the world, experience this change and experience a better access and a better experience to clinical trials. So that's really why I'm interested a lot in meaningful change rather than experimentation. Specifically yeah. for DCT, I think we're way past the stage of experimentation. For other innovations that are not fully tested, maybe we still have to experiment. We obviously do smaller experiments, much more uh, reserved, probably one country, just one site, and so on and so forth. But for DCT, we're way past that stage. Yeah, no, excellent answer. I love it. Uh, it, it just shows your commitment to the space and to the larger vision of why we're doing it. Because I think a lot of people lose the plot on DCTs, right? On some level, DCTs, or on many levels, DCTs were supposed to allow better access because people could do things and not have to take off, you know, three hours on a Monday for 12 weeks. Um, I do wonder, though, if we end up requiring people to, to still go into the site for some things, but then also have to do things on Tuesday and Wednesday, like, have we actually made it easier? Uh, so I'd love your thoughts on that versus like, Getting things done in one fell swoop. Yes, you have to take off three hours versus still having to go on the site because of the primary endpoint, let's say. So yeah, you cut your visit down to an hour, but now you also have to do stuff Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Like, how, how do you think about that? Yeah, that's uh, an interesting question. Um, I think there's two ways of looking at that. So when you design a clinical trial protocol, uh, obviously you'll design, you know, 
this, you'll put the scientific rationale for it. As a study team, clinical development team, they'll have a lot of deliberation and debates as to how many how many visits we need, what kind of um, endpoints we need to collect, what kind of data we need to collect, and so on and so forth. Um, I think within traditional clinical development, we are still thinking in snapshots of time. Mm. So the traditional clinical trial will look at trying to minimize burden on patients by putting maybe 12 visits over an entire year. So one visit per month. Um, and they may they might ask the patient to do some things at home and kind of bring it to the next visit, right? But they, if it's important for the study, if, if a specific activity is important for study, it will be defined in the protocol and it will be considered a, a protocol activity that is defined as a, um, in the schedule of events. Um, so if you translate this kind of traditional protocol into a decentralized trial, you might go from 12 visits in person to maybe six visits in person and six visits, uh, uh, at home, right. Using telemedicine and so on and so forth. That in and of itself, I think is an improvement because you've cut the travel time by 50%. Now, DCT provides now another opportunity, which is collecting uh, digital data between visits, which is what you alluded to. If you come on a, on a Monday, you might still have to do some things at home on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Um, my understanding of generally traditional trials, we don't do a lot of you must do things at home Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, but DCT provides that opportunity. Um, I think it still adds a level of burden to patients if you mandate specific activities. So if you ask them, uh, you know, you'll need to fill this diary every day, answer a few questions on your phone. It might take five minutes, but you must do it every day. Mm -hmm. Um, so there is that, that burden that we must consider before kind of definitely adding this kind of assessment. Um, but we don't have to do it. And when you talk to clinical scientists, they question because they, they recognize this notion of burden on the patient. If you don't need to collect something, don't collect it just for the sake of, sure, because you can, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Otherwise, if you want to collect continuous data, do it using an mHealth wearable. Sure. Uh, and that a lot of that data for in today, in 2022, is not necessarily used for uh, for primary outcomes or even secondary outcome. A lot of that is exploratory data. We collect it to see if we can use it, but we don't have the rigor behind that mm -hmm. data yet to make it uh, part of everyday clinical trials. Um, so you don't have, as to, to, to cap what I just said, to recap, you don't have to, you don't necessarily have to collect in between visits and every single um outcome or assessment that is proposed is questioned in the same way that we would do it for a traditional trial. We do it for a DCT because you don't want to add more burden on the patient. Yeah. I mean, I really like that first example of if you can, if, if you have to do things at home, but you can avoid the site visit altogether, that's probably worth it for sure. Um, and then to your second point, yeah, let's, let's always be uh, stingy about uh, what kind of things we're we're asking people dumping on people and not, and not just over um, over request uh, exactly and it's the same thing we do that in traditional trials already 
Yeah. So this kind of consideration already happens. How hard, let's move to like coordinating all this stuff, because in a traditional brick and mortar trial, you just kind of know, and you don't have to worry about things in the visit because you just know it's all happening under one roof and the site will take care of it, whatever it is. When you now have things and you're coordinating a telemedicine and a home health and disbursement of wearables or a connected scale, how do you, you know, that opens up a whole other problem of orchestration, let's call it. How do you think about that? How do you help the clinic operations folks connect those dots? Yeah, so I suppose that every pharma company is organized in a way similar to what I'll describe, which is there's a division between clinical development and clinical operations. So you got your clinical development folks that design studies that are subject matter experts in the disease indication, the therapeutic area. They are connected with various um, experts, key opinion leaders uh, they have, they go to different uh, scientific conferences and so on and so forth. So yeah. they bring the science behind why a protocol is designed in a specific way. Mm-hmm. These are the key decision makers when you want to do a decentralized trial. You have to talk to the, these departments first. And yeah. depending on how large the pharma company is and what kind of therapeutic uh, areas they're focused on, it might be different kinds of people that you talk to. So talking to oncologists is different than talking to oncologists. And it's different than talking to cardiovascular uh, doctors, right? Different culture, different way of thinking, and so on and so forth. So each one of these TAs thinks differently, but they all end up designing a trial. Um, So... The orchestration starts there and you need to convince these individuals, these teams to, from the beginning, think of a trial uh, in a decentralized fashion. Because the alternative is you find a trial that's already been designed and you retrofit it for DCT. And that's a whole other ballgame. And that's yeah. total that's damage. Yeah, that's not, that's failure, right? That's not scaling. That's that's just like, uh, yeah. yeah. That's, okay. what, that's what you do when you're piloting, basically. Yeah, right. You try it and you try it at a smaller scale, but if you're trying to scale, uh, you can't do this because that is you're creating a barrier from the start. Mm-hmm. All has been designed. Now you're asking everyone to change their design. Yeah, that's a, a huge hill to climb. Uh, so you need to start at the beginning when the trial when you have maybe 12 months between trial concept to first patient first visit. That at that point you have a lot of time to discuss and shape the protocol do all this orchestration, look at the number of visits, maybe reduce some visits, see where you can introduce telemedicine, where you can do remote ECOA, uh, whether or not we can do remote e-consent. There's all kinds of discussions that need to happen at that level. So before you go, like that is a, that's a really hard thing to do because you need somewhat of an expert in almost every one of those areas to be talking to the oncologist or the medical monitor to to just make them think differently. How many times does the door get slammed in your face to say, no, thank you, not on my trial. I'm going to do it the old way. Is it 90-10? Is it 50-50? Better than that? I would say it's probably 95-5. Okay. (laughs) It's, it's, uh, it's a very difficult thing to do because, again, you're climbing a hill already. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of these groups are uh, accomplished people that have, you know, high degree. They're very smart people. They know what they're doing. 
They understand the medicine behind a specific disease. They understand how a disease works. They understand the patient population. Um, and then you're coming with this digital capability and you're, you're trying to sell it. So very politely, a lot of people tell you this is not a fit from the get-go. Yeah. Uh, but I think this is where, as an organization, you invest in change management, you invest in creating a hype internally. Uh, and it's not just a fake hype. You really create a hype because you have something that you're, and you have resources and entire team behind it to deliver on that hype, right? Yeah. Um, and then what's the what's the big promise though? Is it to enroll faster? Like what's, why would you, why would someone get over the lump of the hurdle of saying like, I'll do it? Yeah, that's uh that's the million dollar question because we, I'm very careful of not, making a promise that I can't keep. Yeah. I'm not a politician. Uh, <laughs> otherwise I'd be making a lot of promises. Um, but uh, frankly, the, the, the single big promise that, I mean, the, the, the single big reason that we are capitalizing in right now is remember what happened in COVID. Yeah. Remember when you had a trial designed and suddenly everything shut down and you were scrambling for solutions. And I remember in the heart of COVID, I was receiving calls from clinical teams saying, hey, my trial stalled. Can you do e-consent for me? Like, <laughs> no, I can't because I need to find a vendor. And, and where, where were you yet last year? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, can you can we collect data using the Apple Watch? Do, like, can we just send Apple Watches to everyone? And obviously I can't. We can't just do that. We don't even know if it's validated and everything. So we don't want to face this situation anymore. And a lot of people remember that time and they recognize that we need to be prepared as an organization to provide that kind of flexibility in case something shuts down. But most importantly, I think the pandemic forced the general consumer to digitize everything. We digitized our grocery shopping. We digitized school for kids. Uh, the, the general population in general has accepted the fact that there's another way of doing things. So maybe I can do this trial 50% from home. Why not? If it's if the, if the company gives me that option, I'd probably do it. Um, and they, they are a lot of uh, clinical teams as they do kind of patient ad boards and they talk to a sample representation of the patients of interest of a specific disease, they're hearing that feedback. They're hearing feedback from patients saying, well, it would be good if you make the trial less burdensome for me because I don't want to travel 16 times during this year. I'd rather, if you can do it 10 times, actually much better for me. Yeah. So they're hearing this feedback. They're hearing the hype outside from the tech vendors. And there is an incentive for different teams to jump on that bandwagon. So it's not as difficult as it was maybe three, four or five years ago. But it's not a walk in the park still. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah. So, I mean, so back to the orchestration um, question. Once you've once you've convinced you know a medical uh, scientist to, to agree to do things remotely, um, that now you have the heavy burden of making it happen because there's a lot of point solutions out there that are probably great, but few that stitch it all together. Like, so how how are you solving that in the in the short term? Yeah, and this is this is where the the power of partnership comes in. And, and um, you know, earlier I said we're, we have a very strong partnership with our IT colleagues and our procurement colleagues. So that 
me and my team can focus on the business, can focus on the strategy, and we let other groups uh, focus both on the, you know, making the right deals for us and making sure the technology is integrated with our current ecosystem. Uh, so we get involved, but we don't own these parts. Uh, but I don't think, I, I think having to go to five different solutions for a trial becomes a barrier in and of itself. So mm-hmm. if, if a study agrees, if a study team agrees to uh, design their study amenable for a decentralized trial, and then now I got to go and contract with five different vendors, I won't be able to deliver. Yeah. So I think the key here is to establish solid partnerships with vendors that can provide more than one solution that's already integrated. Uh, with or at least work together, right? Exactly. That yeah. Work together. Um, and you have, you don't need to contract with them for every study. If you have, for example, an enterprise agreement that reduces your timeline by a lot. So we can deliver, we remove that barrier from the get move contracting and the, the technology integration barrier, because we do all of that upfront and we focus just on making sure that we can meet the study design and making sure we can configure whichever platform in the right way so that we can meet the DCT expectations. Yeah. And then, so one final like detailed question, when it then gets to the site level, like all these sites work a little bit differently. What happens if somebody doesn't want to buy into all of it or um, do you exclude them or do you find a way to accommodate that? And does that complicate things also? That definitely complicates things, and that's not that we haven't been able to fully crack yet. Yeah, uh, I think that that's where, as an industry, this is not a BMS only problem or yeah. Pfizer or a Sanofi or Lilly problem, right? This is something as an industry we need to uh, tackle collectively. And I'm sure I know there are already some consortia and groups that are working to bring sites up to speed. I know SCRS is doing a lot of work there and and there are others, Uh, but there's definitely um, a very heterogeneous landscape on the site side for every one of the DCT capabilities that I mentioned. Some sites you will see are very technologically driven and they have already a suite of DCT tools that they bought and they configured for all of their trials. So, They would tell us, we don't want to use yours. We already invested in ours. There's that type. There are some sites that will relish on any technology you can give them, and they will accept anything you can give them. This, these are sites we like to work with. <laughs> uh, and then there are sites that resist everything. Yeah. Um, and then you add on top of that the complexity of you must do it differently in different countries because the regulations are not all aligned. So it's a mishmash of a problem at different levels. And um, on the regulatory front, we work with our regulatory teams to get insights into what we can do in which country, and we adapt the study design accordingly. But on the site side, I think it's a it's a wild card because one thing we can do is uh, during the feasibility questionnaire process, as we evaluate sites and you know s- select sites and so on and so forth we can add specific questions to evaluate the site's readiness to take on a DCT study. And that's something we're currently, obviously we're evaluating and I'm sure many different sponsors are doing the same. Nevertheless, what we are seeing is many sites are just not ready and we Mm -hmm. can't just exclude them. At the end of the day, 
It's the science that matters. We want to deliver new new therapies to patients. So I'm not going to disqualify, you know, a site that can bring me 25 patients just because they can't do DCT. Right. And and that way, if I were to do, if we were to do that, you know, we'd we'd make the medicine less accessible for patients. That right. So it's a much more nuanced approach that we take. We work with these sites and we recognize that this in and of itself is a large change management curve that we need to embark on and it will take time. Yeah. But as long as we, we become the source of change and we align with those sites that are willing to make the change, uh, I think it'll take time, but there's a path to success. Yeah. Or, or, you know, might there be a future where, gosh, you can, it's the system is, you know, the system is flexible enough to do a mix of brick and mortar that just want to do things traditionally and sites that do DCT and then like virtual sites that no one ever comes in at all. Maybe that's right. There's probably room at the table for everyone eventually. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And I I think this is where the future is going uh, because you can't change all the sites all at once at various levels of readiness. And there are various factors that influence that to your point. You just brought another point, which is the virtual site, which is this, this is a new player that's coming into the space. There are many vendors that are launching these virtual sites offerings, which really wasn't there two years ago. Um, And I don't think pharma necessarily is fully ready to take on this new concept this new player of the virtual site it doesn't work for every ta and i don't think we necessarily know how to work with them across every ta but it's definitely uh, a very interesting player uh, uh, that that we need to leverage and and see how we we include into our uh dcts yeah i mean life is hard enough right (laughs) yeah Yeah. Uh, listen as i predicted this conversation went longer than i had planned so thank you for spending extra time uh with me today one final question though like let's fast forward three years give me very quickly what does success look like to you personally in three years i would hope that we have enough experience with with DCTs, uh, both at, at my company and in the industry, that we're no longer struggling with the definition uh, across across different partners and different uh, industry players, and that it is a viable option that is always considered for every study design. That's what success looks like. If I'm if I close my eyes and look at uh, July 2025. That's where I would hope we are. Hassan, I love I love that response because it's truthful and it's attainable and it's probably re- the most realistic. Uh, you're not getting over your skis at all. You know, you hear other folks say like 50% of trials will be remote. Like, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, thanks so much for spending time uh, with us today. Uh, this actually, believe it or not, this is probably the, the longest time you and I have ever had kind of a one-on-one conversation. Oftentimes we get drowned out by other voices, but it was really a pleasure to um, you know talk to you at length today. It takes a podcast to get us. Uh, That's right. That but, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, thanks pleasure. for coming and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Research Confidential. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information about us, show notes, transcripts, and resources, please visit proofpilot.com. If you'd like to debunk a clinical research myth, 
share some war stories, or maybe just show our audience what kind of heroics it takes to pull off gold standard research, send us your thoughts, episode ideas, and more to help at proofpilot.com. This show was presented by Proofpilot and is powered by Outcomes Rocket. This episode was brought to you by the Outcomes Rocket Network. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, make sure you leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and let us know what you're looking for.